when I when I got laid off, I I didn't feel defeated, you know. I saw it as an opportunity. So for me, don't be afraid of adversity, because out of adversity comes success. But you've got to learn to turn adversity into success, and that's one of the things. So when someone says you can't do this or it's impossible, so when we talk about zero gun violence, don't tell me it's impossible. When I know that we have the template right in front of us. So it's about confidence that you can be the driver to success and not the victim of failure, knowing the difference. So for me, it's when there's an obstacle, not giving in, but just elevating my game to see how can I navigate through it? How can I overcome and not sit down and let external forces or situations dictate where I'm going to go? You're listening to The Grind and Gratitude Show. I am Danny Stone, and I've dedicated my entire life to helping people win. Win in their careers, win in their businesses, and win in their lives. This podcast is going to help you get on your grind and hustle to create the life you love and walk in gratitude along the journey. Each episode, I'll teach you tools and tactics and bring you conversations with experts that will help you turn your passion into a thriving online business. Life isn't about wishing for something greater. It's about making it happen. There's something special about you. Grind until you find it. Be grateful when you get it. Welcome to the Grind and Gratitude Show. I am Danny Stone, and uh, thanks so much for being here. But before we jump into this episode with this very special guest that I have, I want to say thank you to everybody who's been tuning into the show. We just got the numbers back and we have reached listeners in 21 different countries so far. So thank you so much to all of the listeners all over the world. We really, really appreciate it. Please make sure that you like and share and subscribe so we can reach even more people. So let's jump into this episode. Now, look, you guys know that I bring you amazing guests and I have a very special guest on this episode. Uh, He's been a community activist for over 30 years. He's the founder of Zero Gun Violence Movement, a group dedicated to ending gun violence and creating safe communities in Toronto, Canada. Uh, He's a TV star. He's always on TV. Many people know know him as Brother Louie. A lot of people call him Uncle Louie. I call him King Louie. (laughs) But welcome to the show, Mr. Louie March. Glad to be here. Glad to be here, Coach Stone. (laughs) Glad to be here. Uh, so like Louie, you and I, we go way back and, uh, first of all, thanks so much for being on the show. We're gonna, we're gonna get into a whole bunch of different things, but you know, you and I met many years ago in the corporate world and, you know, before we jump into everything that you're doing now, like talk a little bit about like your experience working in the corporate world. Yeah, I was in the corporate world for a good 30 years, 40 years, did my time, did my grind, did my hustle. I was usually in a management or supervisory position, mainly in uh, financial services. And that was important to me because it gave me an opportunity to not only keep a job down, but also to learn about financial management, financial theory, financial concepts, how to turn $1,000 into $2,000 and not turn $1,000 into $0. 
which we are very good at doing. And it also forced me to develop as a person because when you're managing people, you're managing deadlines, you're managing limited resources, you're, you're managing uh, expectations. Uh, how do you juggle? How do you balance all these expectations and keep your staff happy so that they can work at their best? And that was an ongoing process that forced me to get outside of my comfort zone and uh, start learning how to influence other people, your staff, in a way that they contributed more to the team objectives and bottom line of my department. So that was important to me. Uh, and yeah, like I, I, I was a manager, supervisor, corporate manager in different companies, but at the same time, the skills for survival, the skills to holding down a job, the skills for working with management, the skills for working with staff that came in all different shapes, sizes. Like it forces you to be more receptive to others than only focusing on on yourself. Yeah, that's true. You know, and, and like, what did you take away from working in the corporate world and that, that you've kind of used in your own life? Obviously, you talked a lot about finances and working with people. Like, what did you take away from like working in the corporate world and put into your own life? It was about management theory, that not everybody is the same. And the management style for one person might not be effective for another person. It was about management theory in terms of uh, something we call management by objectives, MBO, which is basically you don't sit down and declare an objective for your department unless your staff buy into it. So management objective is basically you come up with the objective that you need, you sell it to your staff, get them to buy into it, and then you commit to giving them the resources and support so that they can achieve it. If they buy into the objective, you don't have to manage them. They manage themselves. Yeah, no, right? I love that. And then as a manager, then you are there to provide support if something breaks or something doesn't work, right? You, so you have to know when to intervene and when not to intervene. One of the other concepts that I'm still working on is this whole difference between empowerment and self-empowerment. One of my managers, the president of the company, one day came into my office and we we're talking about how do we get staff to become more productive? And I said, well, we have to empower them. And he said, hell no. This is somebody I respected, but I know <laughs> that he's got another card to play, right? So I said, what do you mean? And he said, look, if you have to empower your staff, they're always going to be slaves to you. They're only going to work when you're around. You have to teach them how to empower themselves so that when you're not around as a manager, they can manage themselves also. So when I always hear about empowerment, 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 empowerment can be about dependency, where your staff is depending on you to empower them. He says, no, that doesn't work. In the long run, if you really want to make a difference for them, Teach them how to empower themselves so that when you're not there, the work can continue. And I'm also always mindful of that in the community right now, when I'm working with people, am I building up dependency models, dependency relationships, or am I working with people so that they can develop themselves, grow themselves, be decision makers themselves without me being the connection? I love that. You know, and one of the things I, I, you know, Louie and I used to work, you and I used to work at the same organization. And 
I remember one of the things about you that I really liked was that, you know, you had a really great reputation at the organization. Everybody knew who you were. Everybody respected you. Everybody had great things to say about you. And I remember when I first met you, I was like, yeah, it's true. I, you know, I like, I, I like Louie. I like this guy. And I think it's a, a lot about what you said. And, and this is like one of the things that I, I recognize in life. It's about like treating people with respect and, and encouraging them when they do things right. And I, I just think it, it doesn't take a lot to encourage somebody to keep going, to acknowledge something that they're doing. And I just never, I never saw a lot of that in the corporate world. It was always about the bottom line. You know, it was always about, so for me, like I used to tell my staff, like your compensation is not just your salary. It's your development. It's your learning. So whatever opportunities are there, I'm going to force you, if I have to, to attend uh, training classes, uh, go to programs, job shadow. Because to be honest, the more skilled they were, the more confident they were, the more they would work, right? They didn't have to depend on me. So I contributed to their, their development, but then they produced more. And when there was difficulties or challenges or problems, they were there. I could count on them to work out. But uh, it's about continuous learning, not only for self, but when you're a manager, continuous learning for the people. That I love that. No, that's a great point. I think right now, anybody who's listening, who's you know, on their job and might not like their job or whatever. I think that's a good point. Continue to learn and grow and, and excel until you can do something else, until you can do what you want to do. Sometimes people, when they're not in a role or in a job that they want to be in, they kind of give up and they put half the effort forward. And so it's going to, obviously, it's going to be difficult to transition out of that job if you're not performing at an expected level. Continue to learn and grow and take that knowledge and transition into something else. And we're at a time right now where change is taking place so quickly. If you go to high school and you have a plan in terms of what you want to learn in terms of uh, a job, in terms of a career, by the time you graduate at grade 12, the whole industry, the whole economy could have changed and that job is no longer in demand. True. Right? The velocity of this change, we've never seen this before in history. Right. You know? So you better be nimble, you better be quick, and you better be aware of what's changing around you and change with it, or you will be a victim of this change. And uh, we have to be ahead of the curve. It's, it's like your book, A Driver Versus a Passenger, right? Like, are you going to be driving or are you going to be sitting down in the backseat? <laughs> That's true. So, so Louis, you, you, you know, you've been a community activist, you know, for, for many years. How did you even get into doing this community work? How did, how did that happen? That's interesting. I, I, um, in the early 70s, I met Dudley Laws. He was the ED for the Universal Negro Improvement Association, which was the Marcus Garvey organization in Toronto. Uh, the office used to be on Spadina and College. And I was at George Brown College studying business management. And we were doing a show. And I asked him to come down and speak about the UNIA. And when we listened to him speak to the students about what was going on there, I was curious. So I went and I joined the organization, the Universal Negro Improvement Association. And there was, that, was then exposed to a lot of the injustices that were taking place. 
and the need for corrective action. Mostly police brutality, mostly racism, and uh, the fact that it was an ongoing, it wasn't like just a one-off situation. So I started working with Dudley, with Charles Roach, uh, Ed Clark, and others as the youth component of the UNIA and uh, then BICAP, which is Black Youth Community Action Project. And then we're bringing the youth perspective to the issues. And that's where it all started. And it has been nonstop since then. Wow. So do you see any difference between 30 years ago and now in terms of you know, racism, um, police brutality. Like, do you see any differences? Are there any improvements? Are we still where we were? What do you What do you see? That's a good question because with COVID, I've been sort of in my basement cleaning up stuff, right? Sorting, organizing. And I came up with a newspaper article from 1979, which is 41 years ago. And 41 years ago, we had organized a provincial Black Youth Conference at Skadden Court Community Center, located at Dundas and uh, Bathurst. The community center just opened in 1979, September, and our organization, the Black Youth Community Action Project, had organized a conference that weekend. And there were two issues. And we brought youth from across the province. We brought youth from Ottawa, from Nova Scotia, and we sat down and we had a conference about the issues that were affecting us then. And those two issues was police brutality and uh, racism. 41 years later, we're protesting, we're demonstrating, and what are the issues? Police brutality and anti-black racism. 41 years later, in fact, in 1979, when we organized that conference, at the same time, the Canadian Civil Liberties Group was organizing a forum at OISE, the Ontario Institute for Studies and Education, part of U of T. And that forum was about the rash of police shootings in 1979. In the last 12 months, I think eight people have been shot and killed by the police under questionable circumstances. So they had a forum scheduled at OISE at that period of time, right after the conference, our conference. And uh, what happened was the police was invited to that forum to have a discussion. How do we address this issue and how do we move forward? At the last minute, the police brass pulled out of that forum, saying that they did not want to further inflame the anxieties in the community. And secondly, that they thought it was going to be a private forum that the public was not going to be invited to. So they pulled out. 41 years later, I don't see the police having any meaningful discussion with community about addressing the issue of police brutality. Anti-black racism has now been exposed. So the problems are still the same. However, the things that have changed, a couple of things, in that uh, a lot of the relationships with police are now on film, on video. Not a lot, but we have enough film, video to show police encounters with the black community and other communities too. If I spoke about anti-black racism five years ago, people would say, well, there goes Louis again, talking about stuff, right? You know? <laughs> now when I talk about anti-black racism, at least people are listening. So that has changed. 
but it's not only black people. The pent-up frustration with the policing apparatus in the city is on display on a regular basis now. True video footage. Right. right. Lack of transparency, lack of accountability, and so on. But there's a broader community responding, right? In terms of age, in terms of ethnicity, right? And it's been going on weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. So it's not a one-off anymore. So there's a new public awareness and a public response that we've never seen, mm-hmm. that I have never seen. Right. So th- those are the things that have changed. And uh, with COVID, it sort of amplifies some of the discrepancies in social justice issues. And there's a broader response now from the broader community the broader society that says uh enough is enough yeah and and so what's the difference or is there a difference that you see in terms of between canada and the u.s right what do you see in terms of you know racism and police brutality in canada versus the u.s what are what are some of the differences and similarities that you see when we look at the u.s and we look at canada we know that in the U.S., the racism is blatant. It's upfront. It's overt. It's right in your face. You know that there's a difference between black and white people. Look how they say it. In Canada, it's been more it's below the table. However, it still is as damaging here as it is in the States. So that's one of the big differences. So in the States, at least you can confront it and deal with it. Whereas in Canada, as I said, if I spoke about anti-black racism five years ago, people would just shut down and say, oh, that doesn't exist. But now with the video evidence and what's happening in the States, people are saying, hold on a second. The same thing happens here, but we've never discussed it. Right. Right. So that, that is a big difference between the States and Canada in terms of anti-black racism and police brutality. We have no video evidence. But not only that, the broader community now is feeling the brutality. For example, we had the shooting of Samiatin on the Dunder streetcar. And the police said, this is what happened. But the video said, this is what happened. We have a case where we had a police officer in Durham with his knee on a young person's neck, 16-year-old's neck, for five minutes. And it's being recorded by his friend. And the friend went on and swears at the police and says, what the F are you doing? You don't need to do that to him. He's not resisting you. We have that on video. And the police kept his knee on his neck, a a 16-year-old, right? So we thought it was only in the States, but no, we have it here. However, because we now have the video evidence, now we can stand tall and shout loud because you cannot refute it. So the police story is not the only story anymore. There's the police story and there's the reality. And the video, the fact that everybody has cell phones now that we didn't have 30, 40 years ago, gives us an advantage that we didn't have before. Yeah, and I, and I think that's important to, to know. Like a lot of people think that maybe this, the, these types of things just started happening. It's just that we never had it video before. These things have been happening for years. And the other thing that people like to say, too, is that, you know, racism doesn't exist in Canada. And so what would you say to that? Well, our discussions about racism now, or police brutality, is 
a discussion about the silent victims and the silent participants. The silent victims are the ones that have been suffering racism and police brutality, but have kept quiet about it because they didn't think anybody would listen to them because nobody listened to them. Right? So they, they get quiet and it became normalized and they just tolerated it. But there's also the silent participants, the ones in the workplace, the ones in public transport, the ones in the schools that knew what was going on, but benefited from their silence. So they kept silent. They said, quiet, and pretended this was not going on. And we have evidence of that in the school system on a regular basis, in the workplace, public transport, employment, uh, housing. What we're seeing right now is a lot of those silent participants are now speaking up and saying, yes, my bad. I've been keeping quiet for so long, now I'm speaking up. And that's why you see the massive demonstrations. These people that were usually silent participants have now changed. And now they've become allies in this fight against racism per se. So to say that it didn't happen here, we have the evidence now that it's happened. But not only that, the people that have traditionally been silent about it are now speaking up. And this, this is where we are right now. And I think, I mean, I think it's amazing to see young people out there in the streets leading the charge. I think it's amazing to see, you know, white allies and, and people who are coming to this realization that, you know, there is a, a white privilege, you know, there, racism does exist in Canada and, and, and around the world. And uh, people are stepping up and they've had enough of it. So one, one, one other thing, one other thing is that we're also seeing corporate Toronto stepping up and saying, what can we do to help? We've also been silent. So not only the individuals, it's the corporations now are stepping up and saying, ah, my bad. I missed it. What can we do now? So that is also fueling uh, the, the new awareness. Let's call it the new awareness. But not only the new awareness, but the willingness to do something about it. So we're trying now to encourage people that you walk with us today, you vote with us tomorrow. Because I don't want the politicians to say, well, we're going to wait this one out because they can't walk forever. But if they know that we're going to transform or translate the walk-in, we're going to translate the boots into votes. That's our intent now, right? To further force the political elites to make the change. And having corporate Toronto on our side makes a huge difference. Also. Oh, that's a great point. I mean, what what um, governments understand is money, you know, and, and big when big companies start to um, get on board with things, um, the government has to get on board because, you know, whether it's whatever big organization or big bank or big tech company, then the government ha knows that they have to do something. So yeah, that, that's a good exactly. point. Do you ever think about doing something you love for a living? Have you ever thought about making a greater impact in the world? Well, it starts with finding the right passionate idea to launch your amazing online business. I say online business because it gives you the freedom to work from anywhere. Let me help you unlock your big idea. Head over to IamDannyStone.com and sign up for your profitable, passionate idea.
So let's make the let's talk a little bit about zero gun violence movement. Talk talk a little bit about when you started it, why you started zero gun violence movement. Let people know what it is. Uh, just just talk a little bit about the movement. Now before we jump in, you know I've been working with zero gun violence movement for about six years, and um, you know I, I just want you to talk a little bit about how you got started, how long it's been around, and and, and what you do. Let people know. This is going to tie back into something I said earlier on about MBO, Management by Objectives. Mm-hmm. But uh, my department got outsourced to India just after the dancing shooting, the Eden Center shooting. So I got a severance package. And of course, I went back to school to finish off a degree program in public administration and governance. But then I was fighting initially about police brutality. But the violence now that was taken was against each other. So I called a community meeting with some organizations. And I said, what is going on? This is not what our fight was about. So we all spoke. We had an honest discussion. And I'm saying, look, we need to do something about it. We can't be on the sidelines now. So I came up with management by objectives. What is our real objective here? And I said, zero gun violence. And everybody laughed, chuckled, and said, what are you talking about? Don't you read the newspaper? Don't you see what's going on? How can we have zero gun violence? And then, you know, I, I took a step backward and said, look, we already have zero gun violence in the city of Toronto. And that's when they really started getting angry with me. Right? And I said, look, you look in Rosedale and you look in Rexdale. In Rosedale, there's no gun violence. In Rexdale, there is. You look in High Park, there's no violence. But you look in Regent Park, there's violence. So don't tell me that's impossible. So I got them to buy into this whole concept of zero gun violence as our objective. Remember, I got to get them to buy in. And then once I get the buy-in, then I can work from that. So we got them to buy in. We launched in uh, 2013. It was uh, June the 23rd, the first day of summer. And it was supposed to be a 90-day summer campaign. Because we figured in the summer it gets hot. And I'm not talking about the weather, right? So we launched it at a place called Redemption Reintegration Services in Scarborough. The day we launched it, there were two shootings in that neighborhood. And uh, CDC phoned and said, Louis, you just launched Zero Gun Violence Movement and there's gun violence the same day. And I said, well, that's why we need to do this work. So uh, we started with seven organizations uh, at the launch. And as I said, it was supposed to be a 90-day summer campaign. But come day 91, we realized that we couldn't drop it because more people were interested and it would be almost criminal for us to drop it. So 90, day 91 came. Then year one came, year two, and we just kept going. We have over 40 different organizations, agencies, programs across the city uh, that we work with in some way, shape, or form. We have volunteers like yourself that bring individual experience, commitment, conviction to our initiative. And it's not really an organization per se. We consider a movement similar to the civil rights movement in the United States of America. Because we don't have a head office, we don't have a president, we have a founder, yes, myself, we have uh, executive advisors like yourself, and then we have the organizations that we work with. And none of us get paid for the work that we do, because most of us have full-time gigs somewhere else except me. The organizations do their work, but where there's an opportunity to work with the Organ Violence Movement, they work with us. 
the people that we engage is the quest is, is, is something that is different. We engage the mothers who have lost children to gun violence, and we engage those people that are responsible for the violence, people that have done the crime, done the time, and want to make a difference. So our perspective on what's going on on the streets in terms of gun violence is different from what you're going to hear from the politicians and what you hear from the police, because they're always holding back information, whereas one of our first objectives, a mandate for zero gun violence, is education and awareness. What's really going on? Nobody's born with a gun in their hand. Nobody's born saying I'm going to be a drug dealer. No one's born saying that I want to join a gang. There's a socialization that takes place. Understand that socialization so that they have legitimate options beside gang and gun violence. So it's education and awareness. And the more information we have about it, the better chance we have of dealing with it. So what we were finding with the urban violence movement is that the politicians and the police were not telling the full truth. And because of that, their solutions was never going to have the impact that we intended. So this is where zero gun violence comes in. And plus, we engage a lot of people. For example, people with criminal records that nobody wants to work with will work with us. And they become part of the solution versus continuing to be the problem. So that's how we operate. And uh, we work across the city. We work independently. We're like a facilitator. We bring organizations together. We support events. We don't do programming per se, but we will support an organization that's doing programming. So we don't have the financial needs and requirements that organizations would have. We don't have a head office. If you're going to meet with Zero Gun Violence Movement, it's going to be the local Tim Hortons, community center, subway station, park. That's where we work. But that allows us to go across the city without saying, well, come to us. We go to the areas. I love that, Louis. And and what would you say to people? Because people would be thinking, you know, you work with criminals. You work with people who who've uh, been incarcerated and who are out or who have criminal records. Like, what would you say to people when they say that? The important thing is that dealing with the issue of gun violence, to me, is like a jigsaw puzzle. And there's 10 pieces to this jigsaw puzzle. There's no one piece that is going to solve this puzzle. So policing or politicians, media, employment, family, none of those pieces alone will solve it. So when we put all the pieces on the table, then we have a chance. And if you are not li- willing to listen to those people that have grown up in that lifestyle in terms of finding a solution, then I question your motivations. So for us, working with this population gives us insights, but it also gives opportunity to those people that want to turn their life around. We are, we're working with people that have one foot still in and one foot out. And they want to get out, but the opportunities are not there for them. So we have to keep them engaged by some time until things work out. Because society does not give these young people a chance, a meaningful chance, but also without being so judgmental. So for us, we create that space where they feel that they can contribute, not be judged, but also value their contribution. That's why we work with this population. Yeah, and I think that's great. You know, I grew up in that type of environment. You know, I grew up around a lot of drugs and crime and violence. And I understand how people can get caught up. You don't have to be a bad person to 
end up going the wrong way. And, you know, I started down that path and was able to turn my life around because of I had great mentors and people who saw something in me, but not everybody has that. And one of the things I think we have to understand is why is it that we can understand that if you grew up in a nice neighborhood in a middle class or upper, upper class family, that you will most likely have some type of lifestyle and, and some type of path in your life, but we, because you're a product of the environment that you grow up in and the, and the thinking that you have, but we don't understand that about young people who grow up in these types of communities. Why, why don't we understand the, that they grow up around the, a lot of crime and violence and there's no hope, there's no opportunities, there's no mentors, there's no leadership. So how come we can't understand how, not easier, but how people end up going down that route? I, I don't understand why we can't understand that. It's really criminal. A uh, person that had been in jail four times about four times, wanted to change his life. He was convinced that he didn't want to go back a fifth time. And he was working with Zero Gun Violence Movement. And uh, he struggled trying to stay out because everywhere he went, the door would close because of his history. And one day he said something to me. He said, Louis, I've done some bad things. I've affected many people's lives in a negative way by selling drugs or whatever. But now I'm trying to make do make good. But there's so much barriers and so many obstacles. Now I'm beginning to wonder who are the real criminals? Who are the real criminals? Right? And that's when it shook me as to when people want to do good, how difficult we make it for them. Because the lifestyle that they grew up in, the neighborhood that they grew up in, this was the only ticket them to get out of that neighborhood or to survive and instead of throwing supports and resources into these neighborhoods to change them we've sat down on the outside waiting for them to make their mistake and then we throw the book at them and that's scary like you know what you went through in nova scotia how difficult it was for you to get out but now you've gotten out and you've turned your life around and you make a difference for so many a lot of these young men want to do that, but we don't make it, we make it difficult for them. You know, I think you make a great point there. And what do you see in terms of like young men that, that, that they want to make a difference? They want to get out there. What is it? Is it the lack of male role models? Is it the lack of opportunities? Like what, what do you think are like some of the challenges that a lot of these young men face that are maybe on the cusp of hmm. going, you know, down this sort of really criminal path? or going the opposite way? What, what do you see as some of the main factors in that? That's an excellent question. If you talk to the mayor of Toronto and you ask him that question, his response is gonna be, there's no magic answer. We're not looking for magic answers, Mr. Mayor. We're looking for political leadership. Uh, he says he's deeply concerned. Everybody is deeply concerned. Tell me something different. So for me, when I look at gun violence, Gun violence is a symptom of a lot of things that went wrong. It's like in school, you get a report card at the end of your term. And in that report card, it tells you how you did in all these subjects. So you did six subjects. And it says, well, in geography, you did this. In math, you did this. In English, you did this. Right? In science, you did this. And then here's your final mark. So for me, when I look at gun violence, I'm looking at it as a report card of where we failed 
So if there's a lot of violence in any society or gun violence is increasing, that means we're failing somewhere else. And if we look at it from this perspective, we have the fighting chance of solving it. So we have one, I'm not going to call him a young man, but he did 33 years inside. I said, what the heck did he do? Because uh, if you do first degree murder, you get 25. But anyway, when you went through his charges and stuff, it was all piling up, 33 years. His name is Ricky Atkinson. He wrote a book, uh, The Dirty Tricks Gang, about his story. So one day we were on a panel talking and uh, asked him, I said, Ricky, was there a time in your life where it didn't have to go this way? Clearly you're a leader. Was there a time in your life where it could have gone the other way, in a more positive direction? And before I could even get the sentence and question out of my mouth, he had an answer prepared for me. And he said, yes. When he was a young teen, if there was somebody around him that he trusted and respected, that mentored him, guided him, or directed him, and said, Ricky, hell no, you're not going that route. You're going to go this route, and I'm going to make sure you do it. It would have changed the history of gang warfare, gang activity, criminal activity in the city of Toronto. So he said, yeah, there was that moment. But because nobody was around, he took this direction that he thought was going to get him what he wanted, which was prestige, power, family, influence, that everybody wants. But he chose to do it in that direction. So for me, there's a lot of things that are missing. It's just like the jigsaw puzzle, right? Employment opportunities, education. Like between you and me, when I'm finishing with this, I'm going to go do my schoolwork because I'm still in school. Lifelong learner. (laughs) And my professor has made it clear that, you know, we have to do our schoolwork, right? So education for me is ongoing. A lot of these kids in school, and this has been one of our major beefs, is we're giving them a diploma at grade eight saying that they can read and write and they can go to high school, but in fact, they cannot. Why would you give somebody a diploma at grade eight saying that you graduated when in fact you have difficulty reading and writing? How are you going to hold on a job? How are you going to win a job in a, a job interview? Where are you going to get your confidence about? So you're going to high school. A lot of these kids have no interest because they know that they cannot compete in class. So they go somewhere else where they can compete. And when we speak to the gang people, and we asked them, well, I asked one of them the other day, I said, you know, how do you recruit people for your gang? He says, well, we know how to identify those that are struggling at home, struggling at school. And we take them under our wing. And we give them a little smalls here, a smalls there. The next thing we say, you know, can you drop this off for me? Can you pick this up? And all of a sudden, there's a, a family feeling. And I'm saying to myself, we've got a problem here. If you can do that with your limited resources, why is it that a society cannot identify this, pub- this population that is struggling and provide them, like, outbid you in terms of resources and supports? So we, we, we have this problem that we set this up, we set up these people to fail, and when they fail, we, we act surprised. But with each one of these people that are involved in this type of activity, there were intervention points, and I go back to Ricky Atkinson. 
and we're missing these intervention points consistently. And then when we see the level of violence that is now influenced by other things than just economics, if social conditions such as social media and stuff, uh, rap music, so on, so on, and so on, but we've never come up with a counterpunch. We've never taken this on and says, we can outbid you as gang people. We can provide safer, more meaningful futures for you. We've never done that. So we've left it to them hanging by themselves and then the gangs, the drugs, criminal activity, just taking it over. And then at the end of the day, they've given up on life. I think you make two good points. Like you, Louis, you and I have had this conversation many times. And, you know, the first thing is I think the average incarcerated person has a grade six or a grade eight education. So right there, you know, um, if you can make it to grade nine or grade 10, you know, you stand a chance. And, and, and if you're actually, and if you actually grade and you're learning, not just being pushed through, then you have a, a, a greater chance to not be incarcerated. And the other thing that we talked about is this, is that one of the worst things that you can say to a drug dealer who's trying to recruit you when they ask you where you're going is, I don't know, right? right? You need to be going somewhere. You need to be, whether it's going to play a sport, you're going to an after-school program, you're going to school, you're volunteering in your community. When you have nothing to do, a drug dealer will give you something to do. Exactly. And I think what happens is a lot of young people um, who end up in gang life or end up in criminal activity, they, don't, they can't see past tomorrow. They have no goals, no hopes, no dreams. They've lost all of that. And they just wake up every day trying to survive. And those are the ideal people for gang leaders to recruit because they have no hopes, no dreams, no guidance. They feel lost and left out. And then that's when the gang leaders snatch you up. Do you agree with that? That's exactly what's going on. But Danny, you're not a rocket scientist, neither am I. You're not a brain surgeon, neither am I. But if you can see this, are you telling me that the political leaders that we've entrusted to take leadership roles in making society safe and fair for all and not only for some, you don't mean that they can't see it? Right? So we've got a, we've got a major problem. A young person, 15-year-old, says to me that he fears living more than he fears dying. And I said, what are you talking about? You're, not, you're still a diapers. You know nothing about living. And his response was, what the fuck do you know about what I have to go through on a daily basis just to survive? And that's when I have to take a step back and say, how did he get to that point at 15 years old where he's willing to throw his life away? He has no goals, no aspirations. If I talk to them about an RRSP, they think it's a new drug or a new gun. If I talk to them about uh, the pursuit of excellence, they think it's a video game. And so these are the challenges that we have. They've given up on life, no goals, nobody to help them set a goal, nobody there to support them when this things get difficult, right? And the only people that respond to them is gang life, the gang culture, where they can come in. 80% uh, of the people in the provincial jail system, 80%, do not have a proper grade eight education. Eight out of 10 don't have a proper grade eight. And we've known that for the last 20 years and we've not changed, right? So when these people go into this lifestyle, why do we act surprised? Why don't we ask the education system or demand from the education system 
to do the job that we pay so much money for them to do. You cannot be pushing these kids through school, through grade eight, giving them a diploma and saying, go and spend for yourself. No, that is not the objective, right? And then when they fall into the lifestyle of gang activity and stuff, yes, there also has to be initiative by the person. There has to be ownership by the person. But we have to encourage that. We have to be there. Either mentorship programs, right? We have to provide alternatives. So when the gang people say, this is what we can offer you, we're supposed to say, well, we can offer you this plus because we have more resources than and we've not done it. So Louis, where, we're where, spend... sorry, where, where, where does all this passion come from to like, to be doing this work with young people? Like, where do you get all the, where does the passion come from? Cause you, I mean, you've dedicated the last seven years of your life. And I mean, you're out here. Everybody knows yeah, I've seen you, you know, zigzag throughout the city, a meeting in the West end. And then an hour later you're in the East end. And I've seen you had go to four or five different events or meetings in the same day. Where does all this, this passion come from? You know what? Um, I'm driven because I know that we can make a difference for these people. I'm not willing to write them off in any way, shape, or form. I got a phone call a couple months back, just before COVID, from a young man. And he said, I remember you from five years ago when you spoke to me about something. And I'm in a difficult situation now and I need help. And you're one of the people that I trust. So he told me his story, right? And the difficulty he was going through right now. But he said at the end of the discussion that he now wants to turn his life around and help others. That's amazing. That's what drives me. Because I'm not giving up on these young people. And all we have to do is be there for them, provide them with some support, some encouragement. And the light bulb might not go on right then and there, but we don't have any lives to waste in our community. So my passion comes from the fact that people like Malcolm X, people like Bob Marley, people like Tupac, these people dedicated their life to improving other people's lives, upliftment. And I'm saying, if they can do it, why can't I? Because I see the difference that we can make. Danny, you've, you've traveled with us. Like you've been to York University, U of T. You've been to community centers. You've been to everywhere with us. You see that people need help. But the people that we have out there helping them are not the right people. So we've got to get into these spaces. We have something we call the four R's, the zero gun violence movement, in terms of a solution to this problem. We have to learn how to deliver the right resources to the right people at the right time and in the right place. So this is a program evaluation tool. Are you able to do that? And most of the service providers out there, the organizations, cannot say yes to those four things. Well, we're delivering the right program, but is it the right people? No. The right time? No. The right place? No. And then we expect things to change. And the government keeps funding these programs. Like we start, we tried to start a mentorship program for young people. The program was supposed to start at 5.30 or 6 o'clock. Went to the community. It was closed. I remember that. So, so we have all these failures in terms of providing service and support. And then we wonder why these young people turn their back and go to another place where they can get what they're looking for. Mm. However, it means throwing your life away. Yeah. And that's yeah. what 
that's where my passion comes from, the fact that I'm not going to throw these kids away. I'm not going to throw the towel in and I'm not going to quit on them because over a period of time, a lot of them have come back and said, I remember you from that. I remember uh, your organization working with us. I remember this and that. So what we're trying to do is just buy some time until they can figure it out. And I'm figure I have to lead by example because all the people that work with me, I expect the same passion and commitment and investment, right? So I can't falter. I can't, I, I can't, I can't give up on this. I can't turn my back now. And uh, the more we get into it, the more I realize how it's important for us to have this alternative for them. No, I think that's interesting. And, and okay, so, you know, this is, this is an interesting point. So your, your wife, Wendy, how long, how long have you been married for? 34 years. 34 years. So what is that, man, that's amazing. Congratulations. Uh, so what does Wendy think about all the work that you're doing? She thinks I should go back to the corporate world. <laughs> Before we got married, uh, marriage was seven years in the making because either I was not sure or she was not sure. Right. It took us some time to get on the same page. So she sort of understood where my work was. And uh, she sort of accepted me for that, right? You know, so what you see is what you're going to get. Like, there's, there's no pretense here, right? And uh, so uh, I don't know how it happened, but either I was lucky or uh, I don't know. But uh, but 30 years, uh, she put up. Well, I mean, that's amazing. First of all, you know, obviously she saw something in you. You know what I mean? She knew the type of work that you were going to do. Seven years in the making, I, it was the same for me and my wife. It was seven years that we were together before we got <laughs> married. So I, I, we have some similarities there. And There's no surprises. Yeah. No. And, and I think like you, I've been doing community work since I can remember. And, um, you know, I think one of the things that a lot of people knew about me was that I was passionate about trying to um, help my community in any way that I could. And, and that's why I got involved with Zero Gun Violence Movement. I, I I had been involved with other organizations and I, I saw the leadership. It just wasn't, um, it wasn't for the people. And, you know, years later when I had left the, the organization that we were working at and you left and I found out you were doing this work, you know, I came to you right away because I knew the type of person you were. And I knew that, you know, you were really passionate about what you did and you really cared. And that's why I got involved with Zero Gun Violence Movement because, because of you and because of the work that you were doing. and and and. I see that a lot. I see a lot of organizations out here getting money, but I don't see them doing the work in the community. You know, what would you say to some of these community leaders or these organizations that get this money? What would you say to them? Oh boy. Can't you ask me some easy questions? <laughs> <laughs> Look, you can be, you can be open and honest, right? I think it's important because people are going to hear this all over the place. And, and, and this isn't just happening in Canada. It's just not happening in America. It's happening all over the world. And I think this is a message for community leaders and for governments right now to really be for the people. And so what, what message would you give these organizations and these leaders? The message has to be loud and clear. Politicians do things for poli political motivations. Police do things for their own motivations. Organizations, service providers, they do things for their own motivations. And what we're currently doing is not working. So we've got to take a step back and say, look, we need to reimagine 
what the solution is going to look like. The Zero Gun Violence Movement does not take government funding. If you want to make a donation, you can make a donation. Uh, but the most important thing to us is like the work that you do then. Like you bring your expertise and your skills. Like I'm a very angry uh, man and I don't mind because that fuels my work. But you know, you help provide a balance. You know, like you check me here, you check me there. I got other people that say, Lou, you know, maybe you should listen to that differently or something, right? You know, but you bring your skill set to the table and it helps. My wife brings a certain skill set to the table that helps provide that balance because if you just left me by myself, it's like a runaway freight train <laughs> going downhill, right? And that's why we have to find balance. The organization. You need funding, but also have an impact on the population that you say you are. We have something we call it the funding Olympics, which is when the funders come out with money, they know who they're going to give the gold, the silver, and the bronze medal to. And then all the other organizations have to fight amongst themselves to get the leftovers. But in doing that, they have to undermine each other, right? And they have to go against each other so that they can get their piece of the pie. That type of servicing funding model is not working because one thing that we keep saying is that communities are not underserved, they're poorly served. We've got programs every corner of the neighborhood, but how much of them are doing the work that they say they're going to do? So we have to have checks and balances. So the four R's is one of them. Are you delivering the right resources, the right people at the right time in the right place? And if you honestly can say yes, I know you're going to have an impact. And in terms of funding, stop depending on the government. The government will give you money when it's politically right for them to do it. But when it's not politically right for them to do it, they're not going to do it. So we have to learn to, to realize that community safety, the first word in community is community. It has to come from community, not from government and not from the police. By the time they get involved, it's too late, right? So how do we build up that empowerment? I go back to what we said before. Self-empowerment, the community has to build itself up. We have to have people coming in and mentoring and helping and supporting, right? It's not about always trying to exit the communities. What am I giving back? Where can I make a difference? And it doesn't have to be for, for glamour and glory. These kids need help. And we need to get to them very early. Because the longer it takes us to get to them, the more difficult it will be to get them out of this lifestyle that they choose. So my message to the organizations is let's find ways to work together. Let's collaborate. Let's partner. We work with over 40 different organizations, programs, agencies across the city. I don't have to agree with everything you do, but if there's a, an activity or an event or an initiative where we can add value, we will, right? So learn to work with each other, partner, collaborate in a meaningful way. Because a young person might have five different issues that need to be dealt with. You might be able to resolve one of them. But if the other four are not dealt with, it's easy for that person to go back to where they were before. That means it nullifies the work that you do, I think. So for me, it's we have to find other ways to build partnerships out of financial partnerships. It's about objective partnerships. It's about... Uh, Utilizing human resources, because one organization might have a person that's very skilled at this, and you don't. But working with them, you may be able to leverage off. So we've got to find ways to share resources, work together better, 
and stop these dependency models on government funding. I agree. I agree. So, Louis, let me ask you this. Um, what are some things that you've learned about yourself in doing like this community work over the last 30 years? What are some things that you've learned about yourself from doing this, this important work? My takeaways are every time I figure I figured it out, I realize I haven't figured out anything. Right? So when I come into a meeting, I come with two ears and one mouth because I want to hear what's going on. I've also learned that I have to invest in myself from a health point of view, a wellness point of view, and stop thinking that I'm invincible. I'm not invincible, right? So I have to be mindful that this is not a sprint, that this is a marathon, and I've got to pace myself. And I can do that because I've got good people around me that are not reluctant to tell me that I'm doing something wrong or I should slow down, right? And I'm willing to listen to them. So I see myself as one piece of the puzzle, but not the puzzle. That's one of my takeaways. And my effectiveness or zero gun violence movement effectiveness is based on our ability to work with others, not only when the time is good, but also when the time is bad. Now that's good. I like that. You know, we, we often talk a lot about, you know, planting seeds. Like we, we're, we're, we're almost like farmers. We go into different communities and, and wherever we are, and we try to just plant little seeds and hope that those seeds will grow. And I think for me, you know, a lot of those seeds were planted in my childhood from my, my grandmother. You know, I, my grandmother was from Jamaica and her and my grandfather came to Canada in the 60s. And, um, you know, my mom was 16 or 17 when she came to Canada. And, and I just remember those like those little childhood memories that I didn't even realize until 20 years later. Like I remember going out into my grandparents' backyard and, and picking food and coming back and cooking things up with my grandmother. And I remember they owned a duplex and they rented out half of it and lived in the, the other side. But it, all of that stuff never registered to me until much later because I grew up in low-income housing and home ownership was never on my mind until much later. And I thought, wait a minute, my grandparents were landlords when I was a child. But you know, when you're growing up, you just never really realize that. So uh, what was your childhood like? What was it like for you growing up? What, what memories do you have? What seeds were planted back then for you? It was about taking ownership of my life. I remember before I was 16 years old, I'd run away from my mother's house. Where, where, first of all, where'd you grow up? I grew up in Jamaican Spanish town. I was in England but most of my life has been in, in Toronto. So at 16, uh, I was uh, frustrated with life and decided that I was gonna go and venture out by myself. But I was not prepared. I had no goal, no objective, no resources, no means to survive. Uh, by the time that day I had done, or the next day I was returning home and uh, was waiting for this big party, you know, like lose back, lose back, it didn't happen, you know? So, uh, I said, next time I leave, I'm going to have a plan. I'm going to take responsibility. I'm going to go to school. I'm going to get good marks now. I'm going to do the right thing, get myself a job, stuff like that, right? And I took ownership of how my life would unfold, good, bad, or ugly. I started engaging, positive, surrounding myself with positive people that would deliver positive messages and supports. I never met my father. I don't even know who my father is, right? Uh, so it was about just going out in life and making life the best that I could. 
And that means looking at things differently instead of what is life going to give to me, but what am I going to give to life? And uh, from I took that perspective forward, good things started happening. Like I had an opportunity to go to Ghana to work for four months on a volunteer basis, where I was working with destitute children, and I was traveling by myself. I knew nothing about Ghana. I knew nothing about their conditions, but just wanted to help. And from those kids and those parents that I met there, I realized that even if they had little food, they were willing to share it. They didn't have much to celebrate. It was about survival, but they could still walk around the village with a smile on their face. So a lot of the things that I took for granted here in Toronto, when I came back after my four months in, in Ghana, I realized that I better start valuing and appreciating the small things the small successes, appreciate them and be thankful and just keep building because there's a lot more people around that are in worse conditions than you and they can still smile and they can still feel good about life. So stop taking life for granted. Start investing in life and then from I started doing that, there were a lot of uh, positive things started happening and that became encouragement and motivation to continue doing it. So that's one of the things that was meaningful for me. Wow, I mean, that's awesome. I mean, you know, what what was that experience like working in Ghana? This that was multi layered. There was one day where I threw out my Colgate toothpaste box. I threw it in the garbage. I think it was just throw away. But that day in the village at lunchtime, I saw the kids running around in the village as though a party was going on. So I moved into the area where they were and they had taken that Colgate toothpaste box and turned it into a truck. With wheels, driver, and uh, they're running around. Everybody wanted to pull it on the string. And I'm saying to myself, you mean fucking around with life, Louis? These kids turned a Colgate, you know, the red Colgate toothpaste box, they turned it into a truck. And they were running around the village. And that's when it sort of brought me down to earth to say that uh, you have a gift of life. Make the most of it. Stop whining and complaining about everything and start influencing others in a positive way. Because if they could do that, it was an eye opener to the slave trade because I visited the dungeons there. I saw the brutality of it. But at the same time, I, I saw the richness of the people and I brought that back to Toronto with me and I've never let it go. I've never let it go. And uh, that was that trip. But it also spoke about independence. How can you survive uh, when there's no game plan for you? How can you develop your game plan on the run? And how can you be in the driver of your life and not be dependent on others to drive your life? That was important. Well, I love that. And so is that the same advice you would give to a young person right now who's at the crossroads? Is, like, is, that, is that the advice you would give them? Or what, what advice would you give somebody right now who's you know, trying to choose to do the right thing or the wrong thing? When I'm speaking to the young people these days, uh, a lot of them have given up on life. And that's a sad thing. So how do I get them to start thinking that there's another alternative, another route to take? It's about holding hands, engaging, not being judgmental. It's about challenging some of their thought processes 
and let them realize that they can make the switch themselves. But don't think it's going to happen overnight. It has to be a long-term investment, but provide them with the supports until they can start navigating themselves. Never be too judgmental because you never know their full story. And sometimes all they need is somebody to listen to them. That's why I say walk with two ears and one mouth because I have to listen to what they're saying. Because just having somebody listening to them can buy out some time until something meaningful happens. Uh, surrounding them with positive people where I can. And also some of the donations that I get for Zero Gun Violence Movement. If somebody says desperate, I might, you know, and they ask for something, I might give them a $20 or a $50, right, you know? And so just to buy some time with no strings attached, but also try and show them a route out of what they're doing. But it's difficult because I can't be there 24-7, and that's why I speak about empowerment versus self-empowerment. What can you do for yourself instead of waiting on someone else to do for you? Because clearly what people are doing for you is not taking you in the right direction. So the message to young people is about reimagining yourself with new goals, new objectives, but also the resilience, knowing that it's not going to be easy, but having the resilience to survive those situations where you're going to be questioned or you're going to be beaten up. Because no one's going to make it easy for you. But, and that's why you need to build up your resilience, but also the value of education, the value of having confidence in yourself, and the value of not being afraid to ask for help when you need it. So find somebody that you trust, just like oh, Ricky didn't have anybody around him. Find somebody that you can trust and say, you know, hey, Danny, what do you think about this? I need some help here. But don't see that as a sign of weakness. See that as a sign of strength. And also, you've got to be there when they, when, when, when they need people. Like society always shows up late, especially mm. the service providers, police, the politicians, they show up late. We've got to be ahead of them. So. so, Louis, what would you say to parents? Like, what advice would you give to parents who are kind of, you know, again, um, whose 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 child is at a crossroads, or or they they're seeing some things in their their children that might lead them to believe that they might go down the wrong path. What what advice would you give the parents? When I grew up in Spanish Town in Jamaica, I had ten mothers and ten fathers. I don't know where they came from. <laughs> Everybody in my neighborhood thought I belonged to them, and they were there to make sure I stayed on the street. On my good days, I could dodge half of them, but they would catch up to me sooner or later. So it was like the village response to parenting. So if one parent failed or certain things didn't work out a certain way, there was always some backative, some supports. Whereas in Toronto today, we don't have that village approach where the uncle, the aunt, the grandparents, and others are involved. Parenting now is parenting through internet, parenting through social media, stuff like that. So we have to come up with a different game plan because the parents themselves are struggling. One of the young persons threw me a gem the other day. You know, you said, you know, you always talk about youth and issues with you. Why don't you start talking about the parents? Because if the parents are in good shape, I will be in a better shape, right? So we can't leave the parents up because some of them do need help. 
and uh, they're making do with what they have, but they don't have the supports themselves. So the parents must also do this education piece because society is changing. The influencers in society for your children are changing. You've got to be aware of that. Uh, even if it's just using social media, don't just diss it and say, you know, I don't want business out there. If this is where the kids are, you've got to be there. And then when you need help as a parent, attend parenting programs because there's a ton of them out there where they teach you how to use social media or how to better, you know, what's going on in school and so on. Be a part of the solution. Don't be always on the sidelines because our kids, the demands from our children today are different from the demands of our children of yesterday. So as parenting, we have to be willing to change and respond to that. And we cannot be stubborn and say it's, it's either my way or the highway. We can't be using that language for our young ones today. And then let's move forward together instead of losing ground together. Yeah? That's, oh, that's great. I got uh, just a few more questions for you. What, what would you say is like a, a big challenge that you've had to overcome in your life? And, and how did you do that? What's, what's something that you, you know, you've had to overcome and, and how did you do that? When I, when I got laid off, I, I didn't feel defeated, you know? I saw it as an opportunity. So for me, don't be afraid of adversity because out of adversity comes success. But you've got to learn to turn adversity into success. And that's one of the things. So when someone says you can't do this or it's impossible, so when we talk about zero gun violence, don't tell me it's impossible when I know that we have the template right in front of us. So it's about confidence that you can be the driver to success and not the victim of failure, knowing the difference. So for me, is when there's an obstacle, not giving in, but just elevating my game to see how can I navigate through it? How can I overcome and not sit down and let external forces or situations dictate where I'm going to go? So I'm emboldened and encouraged by the fact that I get small victories, even though like it's very discouraging at times. The stories of the young people that are in a better situation because of the work with Zero Gun Violence Movement or the messaging that we have delivered across the city. That inspires and it's not it's also about expectations. Not expecting success immediately, just biding my time until it comes. But having the confidence that if you continue on this lane, it will ultimately come. So those are the type of things that I like that. Um, so what, just a couple more questions. What, what's something that you are most proud of in your life? It doesn't, it can be anything. It can be with the work that you're doing. It can be anything. Well, like what's, what's something that you're really proud of? Something that you've accomplished or something that's happened or something you've been a part of? Yeah. You know what? I think my stay in Ghana for the four months, I'm very proud of that because I went there not knowing what I was getting into, but I left there being a better person because of interacting with destitute children who are teaching me how to live a life. <laughs> you know, I to myself, holy shit, I came there to teach you how to live your life, but you're teaching me how to live mine, right? Not by word, but through actions. So I'm very happy about that. I'm also proud of the fact that I went skydiving one day and I landed safely on the ground. 
<laughs> you my skydiving? <laughs> Even though Wendy was concerned that I wouldn't do this right, uh, but I did fall incorrectly, <laughs> and uh, within two hours of falling, my knees started seizing up, and I had to get my way wow. home and pretend as though nothing was wrong. <laughs> Stuff like that. So, so it was just overcoming adversity, and for me. Uh, what did they say in Jamaica? The hotter the battle, the sweeter the victory. So adversity to me, overcoming adversity with confidence. So not being afraid to ask for help or see that as a sign of weakness and see that as a sign of strength. So so that for me is important. Wow, that's I, I think that's great. I think sometimes we have to understand, you know, um we can learn from anybody and we can learn from any situation yeah. mm -hmm. and it, it, you can learn from people younger than you. You can learn from people older than you. And I think that's a really good lesson because sometimes we go into things expecting a certain outcome or expecting that we're going to teach somebody something and we can actually walk away with that learning more about ourselves uh, from those situations. So and that's really interesting that you said that. So I got two final questions for you. I ask everybody these two questions when we wrap up. What does it mean to you to grind and to hustle? What does that mean to you? To grind and hustle. You have to do that today. Like every day is a grind and a hustle. But be in the driver's seat. Have a plan. It's leading somewhere. Don't be at the mercy of others. Jimmy Cliff, a reggae artist, said, I'd rather be a free man in my grave than be a puppet on a string. You know? I'd rather be a free man in my grave than be a puppet on a string. Bob Marley said, get up, stand up, stand up for your rights. We cannot give up. We have to be aggressive. We have to be bold. We have to be imaginative. Because there's the thinking that most people only use 20% of their ability. And uh, that means there's 80% that is untapped. I want to I find out what that 80% looks like. I want to get a piece of it. <laughs> Me too. I want to get a piece of it. So that's my driver, you know, continuous improvement, continuous development, continuous learning uh, so that I can get better at my life, but also be able to influence and have an impact on others. And uh, so from the work environment to the community environment, there's small victories and there's big victories along the way. Maybe not enough as I want, but at the same time, uh, perseverance, resilience, determination, conviction that it's leading in the right direction. Well, I can definitely say that you are making a great impact out here in this community. You know, I see people all the time who come up to you and, and tell you that. And, you know, even from working with you, I know that you're making a great difference in, in, in the community. So, you know, you're doing amazing work out there. Now, the last question for you is um, gratitude. You know, what does gratitude mean to you? Gratitude is being generous with your praise. Right, when somebody does something good, please say thank you. Please say you did a good job. Because that might be the only positive thing that person might have heard uh, in the day. Don't be the one to throw the first stone, but try to be the first one to extend a hand. That is gratitude. We don't know the burdens that people carry them on a daily basis. So if we're quick to judge everybody, by what we see, we don't know, and what we do not know, you know, it could end up causing more damage than anything. So gratitude to me means about being the one to extend your hand first, but not being the first one to throw the stone. 
somebody or throw them under the bus. And that for me is uh, gratitude, but it's also an appreciation and a respect for life. Well, well, man, Louis, thanks so much, man. You dropped you dropped a lot of knowledge there. You, you dropped you dropped a lot of nuggets, man. I think um a lot of people are really gonna enjoy this episode. And I think that, you know, you you one of the key messages that you really said is that, you know, in terms of grinding gratitude is you have to wake up every day with a plan, with determination to keep going. And and the gratitude is is uh, being generous with your praise. I love that. That's that's awesome. So let everybody know where they can follow you, where they can find you. Um, let them know. So Zero Gun Violence Movement, we're active on social media. So whether it's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, we don't trust traditional media to tell our story completely. So if you go to YouTube and look at the videos that we've put out, we've just released one which is like seven years in the making. One of our associates took a lot of uh, clips historically about our work and put it together into a 30-minute documentary, I should call it, that speaks about our work. So YouTube is very good to go to. And also just Google. Uh, we have an email address, zerogunviolence.movement at gmail.com. And... Uh, I try honestly to respond to everything, every inquiry, because a lot of people want to make a difference. A lot of people want to help. And if zero gun, zero gun violence movement can be a place for them to work and figure out things or make a contribution, we're willing to do that. We have a lot of, everybody that works with this is a volunteer, as a matter of fact. And they come from all streams of life. And uh, the best way to reach us is uh, through email and at the phone number, if you got a pen, 416-577-3908. And that's a direct line. You know, you're going to actually speak to me. And uh, depending on, you know, any intersection points, we'll figure it out. As I said, everybody that works for us are volunteers that believe that zero gun violence is a viable objective realizing that it's not going to be easy it will be difficult but we need to start working for it to be enough stuff until it happens by chance you know we've got to be it's got to be part of a bigger plan and that's where zero gun violence movement comes in well thanks so much louis i really appreciate you being on the show um you know thank you for taking the time to come on you know um you, again um appreciate all of the work that you're doing and and uh, i'm very grateful and thankful to be a part of the zero gun violence movement team so that's it for this episode of the grind and gratitude show i will see you guys in the next episode take care thanks so much for being my co-host on this episode of the grind and gratitude show i really appreciate you i hope that you learned something and you're motivated to take action and get on your grind didn't that go by fast if you want more, head over to grindinggratitude.com for show notes and information about this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a rating so more people will know to tune in. And let me leave you with this. There's something special about you. Grind until you find it. Be grateful when you get it.